Well, today we begin our Ten Commandments series, and we talk about no other gods, the first commandment. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 today, and for the next several months, actually. And we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 3 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or flip over, open your, or over your bulletin, you'll be able to see that scripture right there. About 20 years ago, I was working a paramedic shift, and we got called to a 14-year-old girl at a gas station having an unknown medical problem in the bathroom. And so we went over there, and we found out the medical problem was the fact that she was pregnant and her water had broken. So we got her to the local community hospital, and we got called back about an hour later to transfer to a Milwaukee area hospital that specialized in high-risk obstetrics. And it's about an hour drive from hospital to hospital, so I got to have a little bit of a conversation with her. We'll just call her Jane Doe, protect her privacy. And Jane was a ward of the state, and she was living in one of the local shelters for troubled kids. And Jane, during the transport, was very open about her past, talking to me about how she'd been in and out of the foster system since five. And like many of the children who had been thrown into the foster system, they end up repeating the same mistakes their parents uh, made. And Jane's mother had had her at a very young age, and now Jane is following in her mother's footsteps, even though she didn't really ever get a chance to know her. And she suspected even that the father of her child was some guy in his 20s that she had met at a party. And when I was preparing for this message, and I remember Jane, I realized that she was an example of what people who have never known a father's love looks like. People who have never had a stable household to grow up in and the kind of things that they get involved with. And in Exodus chapter 20, Israel is in a very similar situation as they camp around Mount Sinai. Just think of what they're going through right now. Just a couple weeks ago, they were enduring the whip of a master. They were slaves in Egypt. In fact, for 400 years, their people have known nothing but slavery. And just like Jane, they had no idea of who their father was, and in this case, their father God. They only knew God as Elohim. They only knew him as creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had no real personal relationship with God and knew very little about him. And you also have to remember, they did not have the complete word of God like we do. They had only a, mostly an oral history that was passed from family to family, from Genesis 1 to now Exodus 20. So in other words, we have this revelation right here. They had that, an oral tradition. So they really didn't have a really objective way to view God. It was mostly people's opinions. It mostly came from this oral tradition. So God decides to bring his children, who do not really know him at this point, to the mountain for the first family meeting ever between God and his chosen people, Israel. So Moses tells them, go get ready. You are going to meet God. Wash your clothes. Abstain from intimacy. Make sure that your hearts are right. Make sure that you are pure and, and in the right mind because daddy is coming home. Your father is coming home and he wants to talk to all of us. And God the Father starts the conversation and starts speaking to his people with these words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. 
And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And Father God, I just ask, Lord, that we just take this scripture and we understand the richness and depth and meaning and truth that you are trying to bring out through these three brief statements that you make here, Lord. Help us to see the love and compassion and, and, and caring that you are showing through giving us the Ten Commandments as we lay down the base of them right here with the first commandment. Father God, just make that apparent to us today and help it to change our thoughts, our minds, and our actions in the way that we see you. I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, last week we talked about the law and specifically how the moral law, which is grounded in the Ten Commandments, how it's like a, a white picket fence that surrounds the yard of God that protects his children from the danger that exists outside of his will for humanity. And today we're going to be examining the first plank of that protective fence that God has around his yard. And we're beginning by noting that the scripture very clearly says that God himself gave the commandments. God gave them verbally and directly to the people. He did not give them through Moses. It is God very specifically speaking to the people. And it's important because one of the arguments in, in, in the secular world right now, and especially secular academia and colleges and things, is saying that Moses simply took what he learned in Pharaoh's household from Egyptian ethics and Egyptian law and tweaked them a little bit and gave them to the Hebrew people. Well, Egypt indeed had a moral code, but it was substantially different than what God gave Israel. And what he gave Israel, he gave also to us as Christians. In fact, if you look at Egypt's code and put them next to the Ten Commandments, the second, third, fourth, fifth, and tenth commandments are found nowhere in Egyptian law at all. And there were, if they were found in Egyptian law, they would have been part of the worship of the Egyptian goddess called Mat, who was a personification of their ethics and morality. And we know from records, Egypt has some of the best records that were kept of the ancient world. We would know that that was part of their, their law system back then. So the Ten Commandments are unique in that they're given directly to millions of people by God's own mouth, millions of eyewitnesses. It would be like God appearing over the city of Chicago right now and speaking directly down to all the people and all the people hearing it and all the people seeing God coming down on Chicago and saying this. You can't really argue six million witnesses, can you? If they had come directly through Moses the people who later copied and transcribed this event would have said, uh, hey Moses, you got that wrong. You see, my daddy said God spoke these things. You can't say that you gave it, or vice versa. Moses couldn't say that God gave it if it didn't happen. Six million witnesses that were still alive when Moses was writing this. Not only that, when Moses read Deuteronomy to the people right before he died, there would have been a whole lot of people, millions of them, that, that stood up and questioned the narrative and said, well, wait a minute, God didn't do this. You just came down off the mountain, Moses. You just gave us these laws. God didn't say anything. None of us heard about this. None of us experienced it. 
I mean, come on, I've seen the movie. Charlton Heston came down with the things and said, those who are on the Lord's side, let them come to me. I mean, he, you know, it was just like the Hollywood movie, right? I mean, so this idea that Moses gave it is just completely false. And Hollywood notwithstanding, it's very important for us to understand that God gave us these laws because it shows us his very personal nature with all of us. It shows us that he is a personal God. He didn't need to work through an intermediary in this case. He didn't have to have somebody between him and us. He didn't call a prophet to stand up and thunder at the people that you shall do this and you shall not do that. He didn't raise up a judge or a ruler that would enforce this new covenant with his people. God gave it directly. God gave it directly, using his own voice to each and every person there. And that means something. Most of us here have worked outside of the home at some point or another. And if you've worked for a company for any length of time, you've had the experience of the memo, haven't you? You ever get a memo at work? Memo, if you don't know what a memo is, a memo is a short letter used by management and a company to convey information to the employees so that everybody gets the same information at the same time and everybody's on you know what they call the same sheet of music. And memos are meant as a time-saving function and can be a valuable way to keep your workforce informed and up-to-date on what's going on in the company. However, they are often also abused. Has anyone who has worked for a company ever experienced this phenomenon called leadership by memo? Let me define. Leadership by memo looks like this. Let's say we have Sue. Sue works for a cleaning company. She's a cleaning lady in, a, in an office building. I'm sorry, I can't call her cleaning lady. That would be sexist. She's a facility maintenance engineer. One day she gets to visiting with some of the other women in office uh, three over here, and she gets to empty the garbage in office number four. And the resident of office number four over here registers a complaint with her boss and says, Sue isn't emptying my garbage. What's going on? What kind of company are you running? So instead of the, her manager going directly to her and saying, hey, Sue, you got to make sure you're emptying all your garbages. We have a complaint. You know, just, you know, we appreciate that you're getting along with everybody, but you really, you really still need to make sure you're doing your job. The boss instead issues a memo to everybody that says, you need to have attention to detail to your job and make sure you do your assigned job duties. And if you don't, you're going to face disciplinary procedures up to and including termination. I worked for a company, it was in every memo, last line. If you do not do this, you will face disciplinary procedures up to and including termination. Every single memo that came out. Anybody else ever experienced that in their job? I have, more times than I can care to remember. And then the managers wonder why their staff hate them so much. But see, God isn't a lazy manager. God is dealing directly with his children here. When he calls this largest family uh, meeting in history, he lays down some ground rules of what it means to be called his child. The fact that God gave the commandments is also noticeable that this is the first time that God spoke to his people as a whole, instead of speaking through somebody else. And these rules that God gave aren't just precepts to govern a people, or a nation. They're absolutes that are meant to help the individual rule themselves. And as us as Christians, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to do just that.
And God isn't doing leadership by the memo. He's not speaking only to the crowd. He's speaking to the individual person here. And we know that because upon hearing the Ten Commandments, the reaction of the people is very noticeable. In Exodus 20, verse 18, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. The author of Hebrews echoes that, that when he said that God spoke in a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. You see, God wanted his people to come close. If you read Exodus 19, you can read all about that. He wants his people to come close. But their sins separated them from coming near. The conviction that they felt made them run and hide instead of come and receive. And the takeaway for us today is this, is that God is a personal God. He wants his children to come near. These commandments that he gives are never intended to separate you from your God. They are intended to set you free so that you can live free of fear, live free of doubt, live free of unbelief. They are a window into the Father heart of God and that he loves you enough to erect this fence around you to protect you from being outside of his will, to keep you from wandering into the domain ruled by the devil who only wants your suffering and your destruction. And the second thing the Bible teaches us through the first commandment is showing us that God introduces himself in this commandment. As previously said, the Hebrews really didn't understand who they were following. Moses didn't even know God's true name when he started following. He only knew the burning bush, and he only knew God saying, I am who I am. And God uses this in his introduction of himself when he says, I am the Lord your God. God starts out by saying, I am the one who called Moses out of the backside of the desert. I am the one who delivered you. I am Elohim. I am God. I am creator. I am deliverer. And that's just a description of who I am. But now let me tell you my actual name. And you see that in the capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles. That name of Yahweh. Why is that so significant to us? Imagine if you belong to a mainline denominational church, the kind of church that assigns all the pastors. Every single pastor gets assigned without any church input. You get what they send you. And the new pastor shows up on Sunday and introduces him or herself as pastor. My name is Pastor. Okay, well, what's the rest of your name? What's, what's your given name? Call me Pastor. If you don't like Pastor, Reverend will be fine. That's it. That's all you get to know. Pastor. I mean, what would you think about that person? You don't need to know. You just need to know what my role is here. I mean, that would be very rude, condescending and insulting in our culture, wouldn't it? If you didn't tell a person what your name is. Now multiply that times 10 in Israel. Remember the importance they placed on each other's names. When a, when a child was named, it meant something. It, meant, it, it described the character, it described the dreams that God had for this child. It described his lineage and his, his attachment to the nation of Israel. 
Everything was wrapped up in your name. And prior to Mount Sinai, the people did not know God's true name. Only that he was God and he was creator. And that created a certain distance that they had from understanding and knowing God. And at Mount Sinai, Yahweh himself is establishing himself as Israel's personal God. And so he gives his name to them. The takeaway for us is this. God is a personal God. His relationship isn't with just a people. It isn't just with a nation. It just isn't with a group over here. It is with the individual person. You know, there's a lot of talk about our nation being a Christian nation or being founded as a Christian nation. But that argument misses the point. God is a personal God to the individual. It's just you and God. He wants no obstacles from having a personal relationship with each and every single person. And since God is a personal God to the individual, a nation is Christian or godly based on the individual relationships that God has with the individual person, not with that group. And God has and always, always, always desired a relationship with each and every person ever born. And God doesn't want that relationship filtered through a pastor. He doesn't want it filtered through a church. He doesn't want it filtered through a country, a nation, even a denomination. He doesn't desire to have some intermediary person between him and his people. He wants and desires a relationship with each one of you. And that leads us to the actual command that we are studying today which says, have no other gods before me. Remember, they have 400 years of living in what is known as a pantheistic nation. Pantheism simply means you believe in multiple gods. Egyptians had dozens and dozens of gods that they followed and they worshipped. Many of those gods are the targets of the plagues that God sent upon them. If you, read, if you read in Exodus, the types of plagues that God sent was attacking their idea of their mightiest gods. And some of that had infiltrated its way into Hebrew culture, and God was dealing that with that right off the bat. In essence, God was saying, you don't get me and Ra. Ra was the, the god of the sun to the Egyptians. He was the, the most powerful. He would have been like in Greek mythology of Jews or Roman um, theology of, of Jupiter. He would have been the top god. He said, you don't get me and Ra. You don't get me and Osiris. You don't get me and Anubis. He has nothing to do with me. Have no other gods before me. And that statement is not simply saying that God is, gets to be first among some other gods you can worship. God isn't saying as long as I just get the primary role, you're fine to worship some other gods over here once in a while. God is saying, I want you to have nothing to do with any other form of worship, period. Exclamation point. Emoji, yes. He wants you to worship him, period. And that term before means, doesn't mean that, or means, excuse me, that God doesn't want it ever to be in his sight, that you have something else on his level. 
It's the same thing, the same language that a husband would say to his wife or vice versa. A wife would say to her husband, I never want to see you with another person of the opposite sex and have them at the same plane I am or anywhere near that plane. That's why jealousy can sometimes be a positive emotion. And God is saying, you're mine and mine alone, and you will never be involved with the worship of any other God. And that's why the Bible says that God is a jealous God. He looks upon that relationship the same way a husband or a wife looks in on their relationship with their spouse. And if a man in particular ever catches his wife with another man, there's going to be some intense motion, uh, moments of fellowship there, isn't there? Might be violence. Gun might be involved. Baseball bat. There's going to be, there's going to be some, from some intensity if, if a man catches his wife with somebody else and, or a wife catches her man with somebody else. And that's how God feels about you messing around behind his back or thinking you even can mess around behind his back. And this idea of multiple gods isn't something that primitive ancient people just believed because right now we have a whole subcontinent on this planet in India that believes in multiple gods, don't they? In 21st century America, we see the rise of universalism, this idea that all roads lead to a divine essence that we call God. And that's, that's growing even in America today. But breaking the first commandment isn't about just attending the wrong church. It's about having anything in your life that you put at the same level or at the same or put before even God. And I've heard it referred to as a functional God. A functional God is anything that you place on equal or higher importance in your relationship with Yahweh God. Some examples of functional gods that we see in the church and see in our society today. One of them, sleep. How many people have, have you heard say, I can't come to church on Sundays. God knows I need my sleep. And, God, and Sundays are my day to sleep in. Maybe it's yard work. Maybe it's money. I can't possibly sacrifice to support the work of the church. I can't possibly give to missions. God knows I have a huge house payment. I bought that big house and I got to pay for it now. God knows I have three different new, brand new cars I have to pay for. God knows that I have, you know, the cell phone with all the, butt, with all the gizmos on it. I got to pay for that. I have all these things I have to pay for. I mean, God wants me to be, I love the, I love the uh, Christian the Christian example of, or, or excuse here. I have to be a good steward, Pastor. Maybe you should cut back a little. Just an idea, just a thought. Sometimes our possessions can be our functional God. Do you know that everything you own Everything you've earned, everything that exists, actually belongs to God. He created the ability for you to earn the money and created the substance that it is made out of to begin with. I remember there was a, I heard a story of a large gathering of pastors who were attending a conference on church growth, and they gave out some door prizes, um, you know, different books and different things like that, and one of the top prizes was a $100 bill. And everybody who, who registered for this conference got put into a pot, and they drew the names out, and they got their various gifts. Well, there was a small church pastor who won the $100 bill. And he's happy. You know, his funds were a little tight. He needed some gas money. Funds were low. And now this was going to help him through the rest of the week. But he went up. He got the $100 bill. He sat down. He heard that still small voice say, Now I want you to give that $100 bill 
to that pastor who spoke earlier who ministers to that Indian tribe. And the pastor is kind of going, what? Huh? Get thee behind me, Satan? What? But that, that sense just kept overwhelming him, and he just had that, that, that weight of God. I don't know if you've ever had God want you to do something, but in that weight. And that pastor finally relented, and he walked up to the man during the break, and he took the man aside and gave him the money, saying that God wanted you to have this. And teared welled up in that man's eyes, and he said, you know, I've been on that reservation for decades. I have very little fruit. I work hard. I have to work two jobs to make ends meet and then try to, to minister to these people. And pe they hardly ever show up. And if they show up, they show up late. And it's just, it just seems like I'm doing absolutely nothing. It seems like nobody in the area understands the hard work I'm doing. It doesn't even seem like God appreciates what I'm doing. And this, this just really blessed me today and encouraged me. And I wanted to thank you for that. God is saying... Have no other gods before me, because you have nothing, you should have nothing that you withhold from God if he asks. It means there is nothing more valuable in your life or your heart than him. And that means that God gets to decide certain things in your life. When you truly allow this commandment to become part of who you are, it means that God gets to decide what entertainment you watch or, or listen to or read. It means he decides if you get to drink alcohol or use tobacco. It means that he gets to decide if you use drugs. And you say, well, drugs, how, how does, we're Christians, we don't use drugs. Recreational marijuana use is so normalized in states, it's becoming normal in the church now. Pastors are actually having to deal with it. We can't just simply say, well, it's illegal, you can't do it. That used to be the easy way out. Let me step on everybody's toes here and talk a little bit about another functional God and one that affects me, actually. What about food? Do we use food for pleasure or comfort? Or instead of using food as pleasure or comfort, do we go to our prayer closets and seek God? These are just a few of the examples of functional gods, those things that we think that we need to bring us peace, comfort, or satisfaction. And something I've learned in what life and, and something I've learned that is reality is that God through this commandment is saying, listen, you can't find joy in something that, isn't, that has been created. Joy is an eternal quality that is only found in me. That is what God is saying. If you want joy, if you want happiness, seek me and allow no other God before me. You know, as Christians, we can even have the functional God of a church building. You know, last week we had tornadoes touch down in our areas. Most of us have seen the news of the, the destruction up in Barron County and even some a little bit in Jackson County, but people up in Barron County lost everything. They went through a trailer park. I don't know, one of the questions I'm going to ask God is, why do, you let, why do you let tornadoes hit trailer parks so often? It's the worst structure for a tornado. But for some reason, they always seem to aim for the trailer park. And you saw people lost everything when their homes were destroyed. And as I was watching the news interviews, I could see the difference between those who had a relationship with God and those who didn't. Those who didn't believe, believe in God knew that their whole world had just ended. Everything that they valued in life was gone. 
And they had that thousand-yard stare of a person in shock and without hope. And then I saw a couple people who did believe. You could see they were still shaken, but you could see the peace on their face, and they're thankful that God saved them and their family from harm. We experienced this at our last church in January of 2007. A tornado wrecked an entire town in Kenosha County, and I couldn't find the picture. I would have put it up on the paper. I have a picture of the tornado as my partner and I drove past it. He snapped a picture with his cell phone camera. And it also jumped a little bit and formed a new tornado and hit the church that, um, that we belonged to at the time, Prayer House. And the year before we joined that church, they had just built their building. They had been meeting in a school up until that point. They got a mortgage and spent a million dollars on a building. And the tornado picked up, the, the church is shaped like a cross. The tornado picked up the long part of the building, the educational wing, and picked it up and shook it and, and plopped it back down and blew out the east side of the building and dropped it back down. And the structure immediately started to slide and collapse. The central load-bearing wall started to slide to the east. Um, and it would have collapsed because it's all carpet in there, the kind of same carpet we have here, nice and slippery, stain-resistant, all that. It started to slide out, but part of that foundation came down on top of a Bible. And the Bible stopped the slide of the building. The engineer said, the only thing that's keeping your building right up right now is the Word of God. Can't yell at the youth for leaving the Bibles on the floor in the youth room anymore. Because <laughs> that's what stopped the building from collapsing. That, that uh, Bible is, if you go into prayer house someday, if you go, I don't know, visit Kenosha, go down the educational ring, left side between the two youth um, door rooms, that Bible is in the in a shadow box in the exact same spot that it happened. I remember we had several TV crews in to interview us about how we felt. And this is the way they asked the question. So, you know, pastors, how do you feel about God letting a tornado destroy your brand new church? What do you think about God allowing that kind of thing to happen? And our associate pastor, Nick Hubing, was elected to do the initial interviews, mostly because he was the most senior person there. Our pastor was out of town and he was actually the most um, photogenic of, of all of us because most of us were short and, and kind of fat. So we, we let the, the Hollywood-looking guy go out and do the interviews. And he said, you know, it's a building. We like having it. But the most important thing to us is that the building was empty. Woman's prayer meeting was supposed to be there at the time, but they had canceled. The whole staff should have been in the building but they were out doing visitations and, and other work of the ministry. In fact, my friend Kevin had just left to go return a library book when the tornado hit the building. Five minutes before, he went and, and returned the li library book. And, and he said there could have been people killed in there. I mean, ceilings collapsed. It was a mess. I have to bring pictures to show you guys someday. And he said... What you see here, and he made the camera kind of turn around and look at the people who are cleaning up. He goes, those people out there, that's the church. This is just a nice building for us to meet in, convenient. You know, we want to take care of it, but the church is the ones cleaning. The church is the ones that are out here sacrificing of their time because they believe in the mission to make sure that we take this city for Jesus. That's the church. 
And that's the right attitude about something that as Christians can become our functional God. And that's our takeaway from this. Have no other gods before Yahweh. Because you know what? Nothing else is going to satisfy. Nothing else is going to fulfill you. Nothing else will bring you true joy like an intimate relationship with God. And the last thing I want to bring home this morning is just reminding us all of this. This, along with all other commandments, are personal. Again, this commandment is not given to a people group, but to you and me as individuals. In fact, part of the Hebrew statement of faith in Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. It's a personal word, your heart. Not part of your people group, they are to be on your heart heart it's our father saying look it would be okay for you guys to codify this somehow in your civil laws if you want to make this into a law for your people that would be fine you can carve them these words into a granite monument and put them in front of a courthouse or you can hang them behind your supreme court as they hear cases but they will never ever be effective until they become part of your personal ethic in the way that you live your life and unless you see the Ten Commandments and this command for what it is, it's a window into the very heart of God, you'll never learn to love them as your Father's protection for us to be set free to live free. Amen? Tammy, if you and Jennifer want to come back up. Oh, I'm sorry, not Jennifer. Just Tammy. The thing about the Ten Commandments is that everyone, or the Ten Commandments, or this first commandment, is that everyone has broken it at some point in their lives. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of God's plan for you, come short of the glory of God. By nature, we're rebels who always want to have God plus something else, or have something in front of God. But anything else on God's plane is by definition having another God but Him. And that's why we need Jesus. Jesus came to cleanse us from our need from functional gods. Jesus took the punishment for breaking the law of God upon himself on the cross. And through believing in him, we can be restored to right relationship with God.